Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. I view military alliances as absolutely vital to stitching together this global operating system that has kept us safe and prosperous for over seven decades. I do believe that they're at risk right now. Yes, we should be expecting our partners to step up and pay a fair share. But there's something called leadership, where if if you want to be the leader of an alliance, it's sort of incumbent upon you to contribute the most to the alliance. Otherwise, people are going to turn to somebody else. Talk about why it's so important that we uphold international law. It maintains our alliances. Our allies trust us. And if we start violating them, then the glue that stitches those alliances together becomes a little bit weaker. Sandy Winnefeld served for 37 years in the U.S. Navy. He flew the F-14 Tomcat, was an instructor in the Top Gun Academy, and served as a senior aide to Colin Powell. Sandy commanded the aircraft carrier USS Enterprise, the Theodore Roosevelt Carrier Strike Group, and the Pentagon's Northern Command. He served as the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the nation's number two ranking military officer. Sandy retired in 2015, and today he is involved in a wide variety of activities, including serving as a distinguished professor at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech, a senior fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and as a CBS News on-air analyst on national security. I recently sat down with Sandy to discuss both his career as well as some key national security issues. We will be right back with our discussion with Sandy after a word from our sponsor, Raytheon. I am Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From end-to-end cybersecurity, to high-energy lasers, to quantum computers, Raytheon is there. Advancing technologies that protect people, information, and infrastructure. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Sandy, welcome to the show again. It's nice to be back again. The first time you were on, Sandy, we discussed the opioid epidemic in the United States and the important work that you and your wife, Mary, through a foundation that you started to combat the problem. And I should note that you were motivated to start that foundation called SAFE by the loss of your youngest son, Jonathan, to a heroin overdose. So to our listeners, I just wanted to say, if you haven't listened yet to that episode of the podcast, you really should. Um, The date was January 11th of this year, and the title of the podcast is A Family's Fight to Reverse America's Opioid Epidemic. In full disclosure to our listeners, you and I are very good friends. We are, indeed. Uh, I want people to know that. Many years now. Yeah. In fact, during our service 
in the Obama administration, we spent more time together in the Situation Room than we did with our wives. We called that doing time together, <laughs> we did. didn't we? And they remind us of that <laughs> routinely. And I should add that you were the one to come up with the name of this podcast, Intelligence Matters. Well, you know, I, I really believed in what you were doing. I think it's a terrific project uh, to bring more awareness of the intelligence community and national security in general to the American public. And why not contribute a name? So you're on the ground floor of this endeavor. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. Sandy, after the first podcast or at the end of that first podcast, we said that we would have you back to talk about your career and some of the key national security issues of the day. So let's jump right in. When you were a Navy pilot, you had to eject from your aircraft over the Pacific Ocean. What happened? Well, we were uh, doing one versus one or two versus two intercepts, practice intercepts, radar intercepts at night out there over the the Pacific, 700 miles off the coast of San Diego, on our way west on a deployment. And it appeared to me during one of those intercepts... This is off an aircraft carrier? Off of an aircraft carrier. At dusk, very, very late in the dusky time frame, it, it appeared to me as though one of our opposing aircraft was closing a little too closely to me, and I had to take some evasive action. The uh, engines on that trusty old Tomcat didn't like that too much. They stalled. The airplane went into a flat spin, very Top Gun-ish, <laughs> And uh, it's very hard to get that aircraft out of a spin like that, particularly in the dark uh, with no engines working. And so my uh, backseater ejected both of us, and I found myself hanging in my parachute at 10,000 feet, very close to dark, uh, over an undercast out there in the middle of the Pacific. So not much to see. Not much to see. It was actually surreal because it was a very beautiful sunset at, at the tail end of the sunset. It didn't get so beautiful when you go down through an overcast and it feels like you're stepping into a freezer. And then you realize that in a, in a couple of seconds, you're going to hit the water and it's pitch black. So it was an interesting evening, but we survived. So what happened when you hit the water? <laughs> uh, the, you know, we have these, this great technology on um, our parachute risers that when they hit salt water, obviously not fresh water, they're supposed to automatically release. So the goal of every pilot is if you ever jump out of your aircraft is to beat those uh, before they actually actuate. So when your feet hit the water, your, your instinct and you're very well trained to do this is to release your parachute. So did that. It was very rough, very rough water that evening. Uh, I had a raft. It took me a couple of seconds to get out from under the parachute and get over to the raft and climb into the raft. Then I got to wait for 45 minutes for the helicopters, which had to go out and find me. I was, you know, 50, 60 miles away from the ship. So I got to cool my heels there for a while. And then uh, the helicopter picked me up. I had no idea whether my backseater had survived the, the ejection or not. I was very relieved to see that he had. John Wood is his name. And then when we were hovering over him to pick him up, the helicopter had an emergency. So it wasn't my night. <laughs> but the, the very skilled air crew in that helicopter uh, managed the problem, and we got back to the ship. That's, a, that's an amazing story. I don't have anything like that from my days as an analyst uh, sitting in, uh, in an office in Langley. So, Sandy, I want to f- focus the rest of our discussion on the defense needs of the United States. And I have three kind of key questions The first is, as you survey the international landscape, as you look at the world, what are the threats that you see? What are the challenges you see that the United States faces that you worry most about from a military perspective? You know, those issues where our military has to be capable enough to provide deterrence and then, if necessary, to win a fight. Sure. And clearly, my, like yours, I think my principal concern is about the erosion of the international order, the global operating system, as I call it. But that's a different discussion. You're asking specifically in military terms. But they're think, related, right? They're related. Oh, 
Very definitely so. But I, I do believe in military terms that we have to be very careful to, to not fall into the sort of Kodak moment trap where we become complacent with the way we want to fight a war, with the technologies that we want to use, uh, while our potential opponents have observed us very closely in some cases. In some cases, they've actually stolen our technology. In some cases, they've developed their own. And they're not only closing the gap on our symmetric capabilities with them, they're also thinking out of the box asymmetrically on what are the technologies on which we depend the most and how can they counter those. So who are those Who are those adversaries? The adversaries, uh, principally, I, th- I would say, in terms of capability, rising capability would be China. They've taken what the Russians have and made it better. They've created their own stuff, and they've been very creative in countering asymmetrically our stuff. And by that, I mean uh, particularly in space, countering space. They are very And when you, when you say space, you mean? I mean satellites. Satellites. Definitely. And, of course, cyber. We've become the most adept country in the world at command and control using networked uh, command and control. And that creates a vulnerability. If the adversary can get into that network, then, of course, and take it down, you have to have some sort of graceful degradation so you can still control your forces. They're also very good. They understand we have the best Navy in the world, and they're trying to find ways to counter that Navy with very difficult weapons to defeat. Low-altitude, supersonic, weaving, anti-ship cruise missiles that have electronic warfare and multi-mode seekers that uh, conveniently lay outside sometimes our own defensive capabilities. So it's it's a, a very determined, smart, and aggressive effort on the part, particularly the Chinese, but also the Russians, to counter our more conventional capabilities that, that we spend so much money on. The Iranians, North Koreans, how do you think about those? <clears throat> the Iranians uh, are also, they're, you know, very smart. They have looked for asymmetric ways of countering our forces and regional forces, and they've principally focused their efforts on asymmetric ways of countering naval forces with you know, small boats, precision-guided missiles, that sort of thing. And, of course, their ballistic missile force that's principally aimed at their neighbors, uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, ultimately Israel, are also very capable and proliferating very fast. So they're smart. They know they can't take us on symmetrically. So they're finding asymmetric ways to, to try to maintain some kind of a balance of power in the, in the Gulf. And North Korea? North Korea is an interesting animal. Obviously, they have a very impoverished nation. They've overspent on their uh, uh, military, which is probably one of the things that led Kim Jong-un to the negotiating table as, as he, he realizes that uh, if he's going to rule that country for another 60 years, he doesn't want to rule an impoverished pariah nation. Different topic, of course. Their principal means of deterrence is their nuclear weapons program. Their equipment is very old. Their people are undernourished. We saw the defecting soldier recently and how, what kind of poor physical condition he was in. And this is one of their special guys who's on the border. So it principally is the nuclear threat that they have. But we can't obviously overlook you know, 100,000 artillery pieces uh, within range of, of the outskirts of Seoul and in some cases downtown Seoul. So it's sort of this crude, you know, third-generation, massive firepower, million-man army that we always have to worry about. But nuclear weapons are the principal concern. So you, you were the commander of NORTHCOM, so you were responsible for protecting the United States, among other things, from, from missile attack. Without saying anything that you shouldn't say, mm-hmm. how capable are we to shoot down an incoming ICBM from North Korea? I, I have uh, pretty good confidence in our capability there. That program has evolved uh, considerably over time. 
it was a very ambitious project at first to try to shoot a bullet with a bullet in outer space. Uh, that's not an easy uh, technology to master. And we've come a long way. And if you consider the fact that every test up until the, the most recent test that was conducted by Missile Defense Agency was really sort of a partial test. Test one part of the system, not necessarily against a representative threat. Uh, sometimes they would just launch these things out into space to see if, if they would maneuver properly. The last test that we did is the first time we've ever done an end-to-end test against a truly representative Korean ballistic missile threat, and it, the system performed flawlessly. So if you want to consider the entire record throughout its, its entire lifetime of testing, you know, it's about 50%. That's not very good. It doesn't give you very high confidence that you can shoot down a Korean missile. But you've got to remember some of those are really basic tests. The most recent one is 100%. That doesn't give me 100% confidence, which is why we always would launch more than one missile at an inbound threat to raise the odds of taking it down. But it's a good system run by good people. It's good technology, and the technology is getting better all the time. So we have um, the big threats that you talked about, particularly China, um, and their growing capabilities. And as our listeners, Sandy, think about those issues and our ability to deter and, if necessary, fight, there's an important concept that you know well called ends, ways, and means. Can you tell folks what that means and where you think we are today in that balance and what we need to be doing with regard to those going forward? Uh, It's a great question, Michael. And I've always known, as you know, or believe that strategy is about balancing ends, ways, and means within a prevailing security environment. And if you're out of balance in that regard, then you're living with higher risk. So if the security environment deteriorates, you either need to trim your ends or you've got to find more means or you've got to be more clever in your ways. Uh, All too often we find people saying uh, that, hey, that's a budget-based strategy. Well, there are people who who understand in this world that uh, strategy comes with a dollar sign. Bernard Brody said that. So in this concept, in this concept, what are ends? Ends are things that exist in your imagination. It's what you're trying to accomplish either on a defensive side or ambitiously in your national security environment. And a typical end that I tend to look at is a national security interest, survival of the nation, protection of, against catastrophic attacks, protection of the global economic system, protection of our allies and partners around the world, and including a protection of universal values and human rights. Those are all ends. We want those things to occur. Now you have to come up with the limited means and the clever ways, combining those two together to try to achieve your ends. And if you can't put those two together, then you either need to trim your ends or you've got to try harder with more means or more clever ways. And all too often, we lunge for just add more money to existing means and we'll be fine. And we've got to do better than that. So are we out of balance today? I think we are out of balance today in in that we have a tendency to try to maintain everything that we've always done. You know, we are the strongest nation on earth. We though, are seeing that our economic power is being eroded relatively, not in absolute terms. We're seeing military power being eroded relatively, not in absolute terms. And we have to face that reality, which means it's going to be harder to achieve the ends that we've always wanted to achieve in this world. That means that we either have to find more means or more clever ways. And I have always tried to focus on the ways part of this because the means are getting harder and harder with rising budget deficits and that sort of thing to accomplish. So talk about the ways part of it, because I know yeah. you have focused on that a lot, sure. and I know that not enough people here in Washington focus on that piece. Sure. And I'll give you an example. The 
it's getting harder and harder in the Western Pacific, for example, with a rising potential adversary in China that is producing more asymmetric capabilities, that is closing the gap on our existing capabilities. It's getting harder and harder to be able to say that we would be able to take that nation on successfully in a military conflict using the methods that we're currently using. So you have two choices there. You can either double down on your current means, more ships, more airplanes, just put more stuff in there, and and that's what we tend to do as Americans. Or you can try to find ways that would uh, present new and different dilemmas to an opponent that would cause them to question their ability to accomplish an objective they might try to accomplish, such as China. And so we just have to get more clever. And, and this is all business people understand this very well. This is called disruption. If you are wedded to wet film technology, as Kodak was, and you, even your own engineers see digital photography coming, but they just can't get the organization turned around enough, somebody else is going to do that. And they did. And Kodak failed. We cannot afford that as a nation with our military. So that takes us at, actually to the third question. It's a perfect segue. So how do we get there, right? What has to happen inside the Pentagon? Mm-hmm. What has to happen between the Pentagon and the White House? And most importantly, perhaps, what has to happen between the executive branch and the Congress for us to focus on the ways, the way you're talking about it? Yeah, and this this is where the biggest challenge lies. We're, we're lucky that we've got some, some good leaders right now, I think, in the Defense Department, Jim Mattis, Joe Dunford, service chiefs, that are that know they need to turn this machine around. And they're working very hard both on the creative side of what kinds of systems are we going to go after and on the acquisition side so that we can do it more and more efficiently and not spend so much time bringing these new systems on the line. But it requires uh, some courage to, to change. Bernard Brody, or uh, there was another famous historian, not Bernard Brody, who said that the only thing more difficult than getting a new idea into the military mind is getting an old idea out. And that is where a lot of the problems are. Because there are these service communities that have grown up in, in what they've loved, whether it's Army tanks or Navy uh, destroyers or what have you. And they want to they grow that capability more rather than potentially shift into something else. And so it takes tough, courageous leaders it also takes a tough, courageous Congress because Congress has, has built this program. There are things there's that are made in congressional districts. Right, yes, exactly. and, and so they've got to be willing to, to uh, accept a little bit of change. Well, and, and that's very difficult for a large institution, not just the Defense Department, but the entire government to do. Does the White House have a role here? The White House, in a sense, has, has a role, but typically White Houses don't tend to direct change within military acquisition, the kinds of things that people are buying. And even Congress has had a hard time. Uh, there are skeptics in there who will, who will ask tough questions, and rightly so. But generally, most of that change comes from within the department. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. We'll be right back with more of our discussion with Sandy Winnefeld. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. Sandy, two other issues I wanted to talk to you about. One is military alliances. NATO, right, for example. How important... And how does a senior military leader evaluate their effectiveness? 
And in that context, how much does it matter how much of their GDP that they bring to the table in terms of what they spend on the military? How do you think about that issue? Sure. I view not only military alliances not only as sort of the fourth of uh, important national security interests. It's absolutely vital to stitching together this global operating system that has kept us safe and prosperous for over seven decades. That system, which is obviously comprised of international agreements, international you know, world trade, that sort of thing, international law, a system of values, and security guarantees that are produced by military alliances. So they're very, very important. And it's important that we maintain them. It's, it's, it's important that we exercise them. And it's important that we uh, keep them healthy from a political perspective. Uh, and so I do believe that uh, they're at risk right now. I do not worry so much about the balance of payments. Yes, we should be expecting our partners to step up and pay a fair share. But there's something called leadership where if, if you want to be the leader of an alliance, it's sort of incumbent upon you to, to contribute the most to the alliance. Otherwise, people are going to turn to somebody else. Somebody else and, becomes the leader. And somebody else becomes the leader. So it's actually okay to do that. And I, I always found myself when I was leading a NATO command, which was a great privilege, that my component commanders who are from other nations were always a little bit suspicious of me because I was an American and they were worried I was going to try to impose some American way of doing business upon them. And as soon as I convinced them that I wasn't going to do that, they might quibble among themselves a little bit. But at the end of the discussion, they were always looking down the end of the table to the American sitting at the head of the table saying, okay, what are we going to do here? That's leadership. And the only way we have that is bringing the most to bear in terms of capability and operational credibility to that table. It's very important. The second issue is the one you raised earlier, which is the erosion of the international order or whatever you want to call it. Can you talk about that a little bit? And then I want to ask you a specific question about it. Sure. The international order is, as I mentioned earlier, comprised of international agreements, things like the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, international bodies, the UN, NATO, a whole host of other very important organizations, the World Trade Organization, that sort of thing, laws, uh, international law, the law of armed conflict, that we, that all these things that we put into place after World War II. And it's held together by credible diplomacy, military security guarantees, free and fair trade, international law, and a system of values. Those five things. And those five things have always been under assault from the outside. Nations like Russia, China, have always been trying to whittle away at all five of those entities. And now the big concern, of course, is are they being whittled away at from the inside? And that's something that troubles me greatly. Talk a little bit about the international law piece of this, because with all of those pieces that you talked about, right, we have our own responsibilities, right? Right. And I think sometimes people believe that the U.S. should routinely violate international law, right? Talk about why that's so important that we uphold international law. Sure. International law is not something that makes its way into the you know, talking head and commentary. And by the way, I should say that you and I used to pretend to be lawyers <laughs> inside right. the sit room. We have our honorary uh, JDs <laughs> yes. in international law. It, you know, international law doesn't really make its way into the talking head commentary on TV. When somebody's talking about, well, let's go do something in Syria, or why don't we just go do a preemptive strike into North Korea? If you really look at international law, uh, it's hard to do that. Uh, we And we as a nation have been generally very, very good at adhering to international law. Why? Because if we start violating international law routinely, a couple of bad things happen. First, 
it, it gives an open door to your adversaries to do the same thing. And even though some of them already are, for, in, for instance, Russia invading the Crimea, the fact that we adhere to international law means we have a much stronger case in places like the UN when we're talking about sanctions and that sort of thing to actually impose those, where we would have a much weaker case if we were doing the same thing. And the other reason for upholding international law is it maintains our alliances. Our allies trust us, believe it or not. They rely on us to adhere to those laws. And if we start violating them, then the glue that stitches those alliances together becomes a little bit weaker. It's very important. It's very little, uh, very poorly understood out in the public how that law works. But I think, like you and I, we, we have our master's degree in that, and it makes a lot of sense. There's a reason why the United States of America has alliances and Russia and China don't. Right, exactly. So I think, Sandy, that you nailed it when you talked about what the, the stressors on the international order are, right? There's the external stressors, Russia, China, regionally Iran, and then there's the internal stressors. And one of the issues, I think, is that we national security types, and it's a big group of people, have not done a very good job of explaining to the American people why this is important to them, right? So when I go home to Akron, Ohio, Mm -hmm. or some other places in the country that I've been, I've heard people ask, right, what difference does it make if Vladimir Putin grabs Crimea or is supporting separatists in eastern Ukraine? What difference does it make that China is militarizing disputed islands in the South China Sea? How does that affect me? Right. So I don't think that we have done a very good job of talking to those folks about why maintaining this and why American leadership with regard to maintaining it is so important. So I don't know if you agree with that, but what I'd ask you is if you were in front of a group of average Americans, you know, who are worried about their their daily economic life, who are worried about relatives being being addicted to heroin and mm-hmm. other things, what would you say to them for why they should care about this and why it's important to them? Well, it's a broad topic that's very complex, but uh, perhaps putting it in terms that can relate to the daily life of an, of an American citizen is the best way to do it. And so one of the reasons why we are so prosperous is the fact that trade across the planet is done in American currency. And there's a reason for that. It's because we're the strongest, most credible nation on earth. And if that weren't the case, they would find some other currency, but they don't want to do that. One of the reasons why you have the ability to search the internet freely is because the internet standards were written by us not by the Chinese. Because if they were written by the Chinese, you wouldn't have the same kinds of freedoms, and you might not even know that you don't have those freedoms anymore. So it really does touch every bit of our lives in an unseen way. And I can tell you there is a line between Vladimir Putin's aggression, let's say, in Europe, that will shake the confidence of the Europeans, that can affect our largest trading partners, uh, the people we're most close to in the world, sociologically-wise, and with our history. So it's a difficult line to trace. I think the easiest and best way to do it is to try to put it in the context that an average American every day can understand. I have a free and fair internet. All of the things that I produce or that I buy, it's all denominated in American currency, not in the Chinese currency or the ruble. Sandy, just two more questions. You were Colin Powell's aide-de-camp. What did you learn from him? Uh, First of all, he was 
an, an absolute joy to work for. Very kind. Probably the most important thing I ever learned from Colin Powell. I wrote, I learned riding in the front seat of his car one day, and we were driving somewhere. Uh, I don't even know what, what, why he was talking about this, but he was talking about leadership. And he said something very simple. He said, the essence of leadership is to hold your people to the highest possible standards while taking the best possible care of them. And when you think about that, it's powerful. It's magical. If you do one, pick one, and not the other, things fall apart, whether it's with your kids or the people who work with you or for you in a business or whether it's in the either military. Either way, it falls apart, right? Yeah, either way. If you just hold people to high standards but don't take care of them or if you only take care of them and don't hold them to high standards, you can see what happens. And that was profound. And the other thing that he was very good at is providing very clear and concise vision. He was very good at what Oliver Wendell Holmes described as, I would, wouldn't give a fig for simplicity on the near side of complexity, but I'd give my life for simplicity on the far side of complexity. And Colin Powell was very good at boiling things down into things that, that we could understand, that uh, his counterparts in the interagency could understand, and that the American people could what understand. What was his job at the time that you worked for him? I worked for him when he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, I was very fortunate to have been hauled in on short notice when somebody else uh, had to be let go. Uh, and uh, next thing I knew, I was I was traveling overseas with uh, the chairman. It was a fabulous learning experience. What a great American he is. And you were the commander of the USS Enterprise on 9-11. I was. And deeply involved in the U.S. military response after. <clears throat> Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. You know, we were leaving the Gulf on our way home. We were going to do a port visit in South Africa. Uh, the 911 attacks occurred about uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon for us uh, with a time change. And there's a little bit of folklore out there that says... And where that I, were you at the time? I was uh, right off the coast of Oman. Okay. There's a little bit of folklore out there that, you know, I whipped my white scarf over my shoulder and ordered the Enterprise to turn north. That was actually more of a, you know, sort of a command decision across a, a number of people who, who had that. And I had a little bit to do with it, but clearly there were people superior to me who were making this. The thing I'm most proud of is the fact that we got Enterprise on station the very next morning. And that required some pretty creative work through the night in order to go fast enough that we could get there at the same time going slow enough that we could run aircraft elevators and be ready to fight in the morning. And where was on station? On station was south of Pakistan. And remember, at this time, we didn't know where Pakistan was going to come down on us. And they had a couple of submarines underway. So there was some stress there until it became clear that Pakistan was going to sort of go with us in this early days of this fight. And then uh, we had to wait the, the month that it took to get the, the diplomatic piece done. And then we, we uh, started our, our strikes uh, on the night, I think it was October 7th. And what was interesting about that, it played into my hands in the little speech that I gave to the entire crew and air wing on the ship, was that the last time American soil had been attacked, the first response to that attack was done by a USS Enterprise mm. in World War II when a, a, a raid was conducted on Wake Island after the Pearl Harbor raid. And here we were, all these years later, doing the same thing, participating in the first strike back against somebody who had hit American soil. And uh, it was quite an evening. I'm very proud of the people who, uh, who, the entire force, joint force that during that time, did a great job. Sandy, that's a great story. And I know with certainty that your leadership style was absolutely consistent with Colin Powell's advice to you. And I think that story reflects it. Well, we, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. Sandy, thank you for being with us. It is always great to sit and chat with you. Same here, Michael. And uh, best of luck with the podcast in the future. It's going well, and it's always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. That was Sandy Winnefeld. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next time on Intelligence Matters. 
This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.